Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome back to another episode of Talking Tudors. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. I'm so happy that you've joined me today. A few words about 365 days with the Tudor Queens to start with. The early bird offer ends on the 1st of August 2023. So if you've been thinking about signing up for this course and joining me next year, now's the time to register. Over 12 months in 2024, participants will come together and contribute to a supportive and inspiring online community of individuals who'll share in a unique learning experience, one that will ultimately deepen their understanding of 16th century queenship. Participants will take part in an in-depth exploration and study of the lives of the Tudor Queen's consort and regnant. From the uncrowned queen, Margaret Beaufort, to England's virgin queen, Elizabeth I. The stellar list of contributors includes Dr. Tracy Borman, Dr. Owen Emerson, Dr. Nicola Tallis, Dr. James Taff, Dr. Elizabeth Norton, Heather Darcy, Dr. Emma Louisa Cahill-Marron, Gareth Russell, Dr. Linda Porter, Peter Stiffel, Dr. Valerie Schutte, Dr. Estelle Peronk, David Lee and Sandra Vasoli. For further details, testimonials from current participants, and to book your place on this unique experience, please visit onthetudortrail.com or my author site, nataliegruniger.com. As always, I'd also like to acknowledge and thank the generous listeners who continue to support Talking Tudors on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does mean a lot to me. If you love the podcast, if you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors Patreon community. Visit patreon.com slash talkingtudors for more information. Now is a great time to join because you'll receive a month free when you pledge annually. Join the Talking Tudors patron family to instantly unlock access to exclusive posts, including audio releases and videos. Patrons are also eligible to attend additional monthly live talks and to enter patron-only monthly giveaways. July's prize is a Six Queens and a King trivia game, kindly sponsored by Horton Games. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. Now, on to today's episode. I'm delighted to welcome David Lee back to the show to talk about his new book, The Queen's Frog Prince, The Courtship of Elizabeth I and the Duke of Anjou. David Lee is an Irish historian who specialises in women's history. He graduated from Maynooth University with an MA in Irish history. David's thesis, Anne Walker and Her Times, Elite Women, Inheritance and Lunacy, discussed the life of a 19th century heiress and her fight for autonomy and independence. 
He also has a keen interest in the history of marriage, philanthropy, and emotions. He's written for Tudor Life magazine and is the author of The Queen's Frog Prince, The Courtship of Elizabeth I and the Duke of Anjou, and The Cecils, The Dynasty and Legacy of Lord Burley. He lives in Kildare Island with his husband, Victor. Let's dive straight in. Welcome back to Talking Tudors, David. How are you doing? Hi, Natalie. Um, I'm great, thank you. I'm so happy to be back again. Yes, it's lovely to have you back on the show. So let's start with you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about you and your background. Yeah, so um, I'm from Ireland, for anyone who doesn't know or can't recognise. Um, I'm a historian of uh, women's history. And so really, I uh, I concentrate on women from, I guess, the 15th, 16th century up until the 19th century. And um, I kind of look at women in power, women with money, women with influence, and how they shape our understanding of the female and the womanly kind of side of history that is so often ignored and how that impacts how we see history. So, yeah, that's what really interests me. Today yeah. we're actually here. Well, we are talking about a woman that had a lot of power, actually. Yeah, we? yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're talking about Elizabeth I, but we're yes. also discussing your book. Do you want to tell us quickly about uh, your book? Yeah, so um, this book discusses the courtship of Elizabeth, Elizabeth I, and Francois, who was the Duke of Anjou. And their courtship kind of was between the years 1579 and 1581 officially. So it discusses kind of the true nature of their relationship their courtships, highs and lows, their emotions, particularly Elizabeth's emotions and, and their letters and the wider reaction and consequences of their match or as well as their proposed match. So I think ultimately what this book is, is it's it's a kind of a challenge on the historiography of Elizabeth's attitude towards love, marriage and, and her own power and her place in the world. Yes, and I've had the pleasure of reading it, so I can absolutely yeah. highly, <laughs> highly recommend it. So before we dive in to look at some of the mm. that courtship that you're talking about, can you just tell us a little bit about the cult of courtly love, of course, that, that was at the Elizabethan court, and what it actually meant to play this game, who could play it, and what sort of things could go wrong? Yeah, so that's, that's a big one. So firstly, it's important for me, I think, to mention that Elizabeth, when she came to the throne in, in 1558, the men at her court, or the men in general in England, I think, were ill at ease with the notion of female sovereignty. So Elizabeth's sister Mary's ascension had been kind of celebrated in 1553. But by the end of her reign, she had really failed to provide England with an heir. So Elizabeth was under no illusions of the expectations for her reign, uh, being a woman. However, as a female ruler, I think that she was able to create kind of a feminine ideal for her male contemporaries and how they saw her. So she not only utilised her femininity when it was required, but she cultivated and promoted kind of a practice of adornment. And this is whereby her male courtiers kind of worshipped her as a demi-like goddess. So, for example, she's been compared to Diana. And this is her own spin on her father's courtly love games. And these kind of derived from a, a medieval game of love, where a nobleman would seemingly, seemingly pursue their illicit desire for, I don't know, a lady of the court. Um, and Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn really popularised this performance during their marriage. So Elizabeth's twist on courtly love, it was more so it created a cult within her court where noblemen grappled for her attention and favour rather than anyone else's. And they were in hot pursuit of her love, knowing that her position as queen and her apparent vow of virginity would really never allow it anyway. 
and I guess this was all fun and propaganda on Elizabeth's part as well, but it's, this really has very much to do with how we think of her today and how we understand her choice to reign alone. And tell us a little bit about Elizabeth's many suitors and why, <laughs> I know this is a very big question, but why you think in the end she never actually married? It's a really complicated question. <laughs> but, um, yeah, um, I have tried to answer it in my book, but I guess Elizabeth had many suitors throughout her life and, and we all know this, but it's surprising that she had many suitors even well into her 50s. And they all they all differ greatly. Um, Elizabeth's marriage, or I suppose the, the lack of her marriage, really was the main topic of discussion for the first two or three decades of her reign. And um, by the end of her reign, no one's like really expecting, you know, an elderly woman to marry and continue the dynasty and, and have an heir. But princes and noblemen across the globe knew that her council were desperate for her to marry, to create an alliance and to provide an heir for the continuation of the dynasty. Uh, and a really fragile dynasty at this stage. So she used her youth and her that kind of eligibility to her advantage. So she may not have wished to marry or said she didn't, but she kept many suitors waiting in, in kind of anticipation for her answer. And this could go on for months or as I've seen with Anjou for years, only for negotiations to really go cold and her counsel really to be left disappointed, in particular, uh, William Cecil. Well, some of her most interesting suitors include her favourite. So, for example, Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, and he really was very close to the Queen. They were great friends. Some would say they were more. Some would say their encounters were suspect, whatever it may be. But Dudley played up to Elizabeth's love games for some time, and he, he likely really wished to marry her. For me, there can be no doubt there was a true connection and affection between Elizabeth and Dudley. But he would soon grow weary of her games and he moved on to Atheist Knowles, who, you know, this caused a rift in their close friendship. But another, perhaps one for me, the stranger of Elizabeth suitors was her brother-in-law, Philip II of Spain. And this is strange because he was once married to her late sister, Mary, Mary I. And uh, despite his close relations to Elizabeth, which by church law meant that he was technically her brother, he pursued Elizabeth's hand for some time, and this is likely to maintain the Anglo-Spanish alliance. And this would come to nothing, and the pair would later become sworn enemies, and this you know, culminated in, in war, of course. But Elizabeth's final official courtship with uh, Francois, the Duke of Anjou, which is the topic of, of my book, is probably the most surprising of Elizabeth's courtships. It took many years and a lot of negotiation, but eventually she seemed genuinely interested, I think, in marrying the French prince. And this is surprising because he was decades her junior and he wasn't exactly a catch. Even after my research, I don't think he was, he was much of a catch. But from my research, I found that the pair formed a true bond and I think their, their affection for one another was, was genuine, perhaps even a little bit more than just affection. Elizabeth eventually decided that she would marry Anjou and she was, though she was weary of his Catholicism and the growing opposition of the match, I think she she wanted to, but she was continually on the fence throughout the, throughout the negotiations. And this may have been one of the greatest regrets of her love, uh, of her life, sorry, and especially when further tragedy struck when Anjou died only a couple of years after their courtship. So I think this is one of the most important courtships of, of Elizabeth's reign. So tell us a little bit about who he was and also why is it that he came closest to marrying mm. Elizabeth? Yeah, so Francois or Francis, whichever you like, he was the 
Duke of Anjou. Um, he was once the Duke of Alençon, and he was the younger son of Henry II of France and uh, Catherine de' Medici. So he was born in around 1555. So t- technically he was 20, 22 years Elizabeth's junior. And it's interesting because he had no real kingdom of such of his own. And he kind of brought little financial means to any to any match. Uh, negotiations took place officially twice for a marriage between Elizabeth and Anjou. But the Queen determined that he was far too young the first time. And um, interestingly, Anjou and Elizabeth they had a lot in common. So they both shared, you know, the scars of smallpox and they were born, you know, as not to be their father's heirs. But there was much more to this. So Elizabeth became queen and Anjou was heir to the French throne by 1574. And Anjou was one of the few foreign suitors who visited, actually physically visited Elizabeth's court in pursuit of her. Not once, but, but twice. And I think this says, says a lot about him. They both enjoyed the same music. They both were, you know, they were fans of the arts. And they wrote passionate letters to one another for, for some years. And I think it's the language of these letters that indicate their true bond and eventually their determination from both parties to marry. And when he became protector of the Netherlands later on, um, I think she may have really then been swayed even further into the possibility of, of a marital alliance based on that. But I do believe that she would have married him with or without it. But I definitely think the Duke of Anjou is the most interesting out of all of her suitors. And again, this is because really he had the least to offer her. And I guess Elizabeth, she may well have realised that she later on required some security in terms of her dynasty, you know, not only her council, by the end of the 1570s and, and, you know, into the 1580s, there was a lot of threats to Elizabeth's throne, her sovereignty, and, you know, she was really unstable. And I think it's important to consider that maybe she was lonely and she just desired to maybe, maybe not have children, but maybe to share the last few years of her reign with someone, although not necessarily her power, I don't think. Yeah, I think we forget sometimes that she was human, you know, and with the same emotions that that we have today. And it must have been so lonely at times. You're right. Like being a queen regnant was not an easy job, was it, in the 16th century? It wasn't easy. And she she really didn't have much much of an example to go by. I mean, her, her sister's reign was very short. And her sister, you know, her sister married and her sister wanted children. And so she really didn't have anything to go by. And so she really, for most of her reign, I think she was winging it. And so <laughs> when it came to what to do, I really think it's it's the same story. Goodness. All right. So tell us what role the succession crisis actually played in Elizabeth's final courtship. Well, that's really interesting, actually, because Elizabeth's long reign was unprecedented in this fact that she was a woman and unmarried. So from the beginning of her tenure as queen, she was expected to marry a foreign prince or at least some sort of influential noble to ensure the Tudor dynasty continued. And this was to ensure really that her kingdom was politically safe and also safe from invasion. And, you know, at the beginning of Elizabeth's reign, there was no war with Spain, but as as time went on, it was really a really pressing matter. And the Spanish problem, the Spanish question. The problem was that Elizabeth had no intention to share or even give up her power to a husband when she had fought so hard to survive, you know, during her her difficult adolescence. Her childhood, though privileged, wasn't great either. And so she had learned from her father's many marriages and that, I guess, many other scandals of her youth, which we won't go too deeply into. But um, she understood that women 
a woman was utterly subservient to her husband once she married him. And though her sister Mary was queen regnant in her own her own right, her marriage to Philip really meant that he shared her power and, and there's really nothing she could do about it. And I think I think Elizabeth had no intentions of sharing her throne really at any point during the first 20 years of her reign. But in hindsight, probably we probably can say she made the right choice. It would be interesting, I think, to see what would happen if 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 she had have married Anjou and if she had have been able to have children. But I think her choice to remain single and rule alone meant that her position as queen was more precarious, you know, without a husband than with one. So it's interesting to see how it would have gone if she had have married. But the lack of an heir and a stable marital alliance with a foreign power really meant that. Protestant England was entirely alone in what you would call, what I call in my book, a sea of Catholic powers. So Elizabeth had a lot to contend with, with the threat to her throne from her cousin Mary, Queen of Scots, and many English Catholics probably would have preferred to have married Elizabeth. Um, I have read somewhere that many Catholics, despite the difference in in religion, um, were really happy for Elizabeth's reign, but as her reign went on and and the topic of religion became more heated. I think they would have, many would have preferred Mary. And I guess this is probably why she was also more eager to discuss marriage, especially with Anjou in the 1570s. He didn't come with much power. He didn't come with much wealth. And that was probably also attractive. But I guess it was also kind of dangerous. And um, I think the main, the main question during that period was producing an heir because England did have very few friends in Catholic Europe. Yes, it was a very, very dangerous time there, wasn't it, towards the end especially. So you mentioned before their passionate letters that they wrote each other. And and obviously, if you spend a lot of time in this period and read a lot of letters, you quickly realise that the Tudors were very flowery in their letter writing. And there were patterns, of course, and traditions that people kept up with. So how can you or how can we interpret Elizabeth's true feelings from these letters I guess that's what took up most of my study was really the letters between Elizabeth and Anjou. I, I started with Elizabeth's feelings towards Anjou and that's kind of what I wanted to get from it. The study originally was the, the, a study of Elizabeth's emotions rather than Elizabeth's courtship with Anjou. I, I, I have a, a keen interest in the history of the emotions. This is a very fairly new field of research but I guess in Elizabeth's case, we can see a clear divide in terms of her motivations for this courtship and her true desires based on her letters. So I think it's more first culturally to say that Tudor women were expected to marry again, have children and be, again, subservient to men. And Elizabeth felt for much of her reign that the survival of her position couldn't allow for that. So technically, she's going against social norms in order to safeguard her queenship. Am I going against what's expected of her socially Elizabeth seems to have experienced great strain and that comes true in her letters and that comes true in her feelings and so when you when you think of those small truths and you weigh them against what she's saying to Anjou it's it's very easy to understand that there's a pattern in in her writings so she often we know spoke of the hardship of wearing the crown, for example. And her refusal to marry may have kept that power in her hands, but it also meant she's alone in a man's world. So her letters and I suppose Anjou's replies are fascinating in this because they reveal emotive language specifically that we do not associate with Elizabeth. So we again, as you said, she's a woman, she's a human. She longed to be loved. Uh, she longed intimacy and 
these come true in the letters. And some of it's, I wouldn't say it's graphic, but it's it's quite explosive in terms of what how we think of Elizabeth as the Virgin Queen. So I definitely can say that Elizabeth was ill at ease with the idea of childbearing. But this is not to say that by the 1580s, um, she did not long for an heir. And this is not just due to succession crisis. This is due to many other factors. Um, and all of this comes out in, in her letters. And she's very expressive of being on the fence, being emotionally torn between her feelings for Anjou and her feelings for her people and um, how she can get approval to marry him, how she can get around marrying him and make everyone happy. And that doesn't sound like Elizabeth that we know. And it is difficult, I guess some authors have have argued that it's difficult to know for sure whether she meant what she wrote in her letters. But I think her frankness clearly explains her own distress towards her feelings for, for Anjou and her weariness to continue to emerge negotiations for fear of opposition. And that's really interesting. And for me, this simply shows that for Elizabeth, this was more than a political matter. This was a personal matter. Um, and I can see that definitely in, in, in terms that she used. She refers to him as theorist. She is utterly, strangely overtly, I guess, subservient in tone. Almost, I guess, how a wife would be to a husband in a letter. And I have read, you know, I have, I have an interest in, in Tudor marriage and, and how, how marriages worked. And her language is very, for the time, it sounds much like the, the letter of, of real courtship and a husband and a wife. So my question really is, well, why not can we just accept these letters and face value and consider that maybe Elizabeth really had found someone or thought she had found someone that she could share her life with? This is an aspect of your book that's so fascinating because you do yeah. get to, to catch a little glimpse, a little peek behind the sort of mask of monarchy that we're so used to seeing Elizabeth wearing. And, and it's fascinating yeah. to see her more human it's just so refreshing really really refreshing it's great to see another side to her it's the side that I've, I always wanted to see I've always been fascinated with her but I could never through my other you know my reading and my research especially university I've just wanted to really peel back like you said that that mask the mask of monarchy and just really get to know who she was as a person and and I think I've done that a little bit Oh, you definitely have. Absolutely. You mentioned there, obviously, there's this facade, I suppose, of Elizabeth's virginity. So how does that influence our interpretation of her reign? And why is her iconography often so problematic? Yeah, that's that's definitely a word I would use, problematic. So I guess my research led me to the, you know, the conclusion that there is much more to Elizabeth than her virginity, and she, which she is celebrated for, and I think rightly so that she's celebrated for it in, in many ways. Behind the iconography of Gloriana that we know her as, or uh, some will refer to her as Diana or Cynthia, or I guess whatever other goddess she has been likened to, she's been likened to many. We have to remember that she was a real woman. She had, you know, human desires and emotions. And she was a woman who adored attention, and we know that. But I think underneath that, she craved real love and something of substance and in part I think she is to blame part yeah partly for how we see her I think I have to say it and this is because the way we see her is how she wished to be seen and remembered but for me as a historian I can't simply accept that there isn't more behind the Virgin Queen's facade of divinity I I, I simply can't just Except that that's all. There's no little in-betweens. There's no those little human moments. There's no there's no depth to her emotions or her feeling and that she was just cold and, and was happy to just remain that way. In many ways, 
her courtship with Anjou presents as much substance in terms of understanding her as a woman as any of her relationships were her were her father, I think were her siblings, or even Mary Queen of Scots and Robert Dudley. I would even have to argue that we have much more written evidence to suggest that her love was for Anjou was genuine than we do for her love of Robert Dudley. And it's in her own hand. So for me, I think as a historian, we have to really think about how we interpret language, how we interpret her own writings, when it's so easy to discuss her love of Robert Dudley, when there's much more evidence for her love of Anjou. So she may not have liked what I have written or how we can reveal her emotions now, but I think it's an integral part of understanding her reign and the study of of female power and that sacrifice for power that she gave. Absolutely intriguing. And so your book, The Queen's Frog Prince, is that out now for people, they can purchase it now? Yeah, it is. It's out now. It's available. um, It's available on Amazon. It's available on Barnes & Noble. It's available on Chromos Books. And I, it's also available in all good bookstores. It's I, I believe it's available in Eason's, etc. So fantastic, excellent. And the last thing, the last question I have for you is for a takeaway. So something for our listeners to go off and explore after the episode. Well, I guess a takeaway that I can give is I, I'm currently researching my my third book, um, and I, I think it might give away uh, to readers what it might be but it's a great read so it's called The Courtesan's Revenge and it's by Francis Wilson and and it is a biography and so I it, it's absolutely a fascinating uh, biography on Harriet Wilson and so I, I think people should uh, pick it up and have a read. Might oh, give and that a, might be a clue hey a clue to what you're working on. <laughs> as to what I'm looking at now something a little bit different so that sounds that sounds intriguing as well I can't wait to hear more about that and David thank you so much for taking the time to come back onto the show and talk Tudors with us again I know it's been great thank you again for having me well that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors thank you so much for joining us I absolutely love to hear from listeners so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi please get in touch with me via my website www.onthetudortrail.com where you'll also find show notes for today's episode if you've enjoyed the show please share the podcast with friends and family and don't forget to subscribe rate and review I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. <music> <laughs>